Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Good morning. We have two scripture readings today. One is from the Old Testament and the other is from the Gospel. The first is from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And the second reading is from Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've been looking forward to this series for a really long time. Uh, we're beginning one of the longest series that we've ever had, uh, 12 weeks long, so I hope you like it. Um, on this really, 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 really important conversation that I think in this day and age uh, should be essential for our vision of what does it mean to be a follower or apprentice to Jesus. Um, So we're going to be talking about peacemaking. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? And just to kind of like big picture what we're doing in this series, we're breaking up the series into three different chapters, three different segments that have specific... um, a series of focus. The first three weeks will be around finding peace. What does it mean for us to discover peace that we can experience in our own life? The second chapter will be around the language of peacemaking. We'll explore the different ways that we can learn to communicate, speak. Uh, We'll discover the power of blessing and also what the importance of around arts, what arts can be around peacemaking as well. And then finally, we're going to consider how we can go into this world and extend peace. This is a conversation that I think is essential because one of the most important ways that we can uh, display who Christ is and bear witness to the kingdom that Christ wants to establish in this world is around making peace, fostering peace. We, as followers of Jesus, are supposed to be about his kingdom, and he is the prince of peace. And so we, therefore, are sent into this world to extend the peace that we've experienced in Christ. We remember Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount where he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Recently, I was looking, meditating on this verse, and I noticed something I hadn't before. And it wasn't that if you make peace in this world, then you will be children of God. Instead, it is you will be called children of God. This is how we display and validate our connection to our Father, who we are his children, is through making and fostering peace. This is how we validate it. This this is how we display what kind of kingdom Jesus is about, is if we are people who have learned what does it mean to make peace in a context of division, separation, disdain, for us to live a different way. Now, if this is the case, it provokes a question. Is peace one of the primary fruits that is produced by the church? Is this our reputation as, as the church? Like when you go into this world and you say, tell me about the church, will they say, oh, the Christian people are known to make peace? <laughs> I don't know if that's our reputation right now. If anything else, it might be the opposite. We might not only participate in the enemy-making machine, but oftentimes we lead the charge. And this has, this has been the case for a while. When I moved here in 2005, I was moving from a seminary at Baylor, and I moved here to Austin, and I came here to work with college students. And so I knew it was going to be a little bit different 
Baylor and UT, just there's some subtle differences, you know? Uh, so I decided the first thing I wanted to do when I came to UT is I want to grab a camera and I'm going to spend two days walking around campus interviewing college students. And I basically asked them two different questions. The first question was, what comes to mind when you think of the church here in America? And so for two days, I heard the same four responses over and over and over again. Any guess what they are? What comes to mind when you think of the church? Exclusionary? Judgmental? Hypocrites? Okay, two more. You're doing great. Jesus house? Sadly, no. You wish, you would hope. Right, you would hope. Okay, you're missing two of them. Voting block? Yeah? <laughs> and the second is homophobic. That's our reputation. And so, processing that, uh, I was, fell into deep sadness <laughs> around this until a couple days later I was processing, like, all right, so what is this saying? And then I realized the one word that I did not hear said was Jesus. Uh, two days interviewing college students. When I, what, do you, what comes to mind when you think of the church? Not one of them spoke of Jesus. And so in many ways, what people are rejecting is an establishment of religion void of Jesus, which I actually find a lot of hope in. I love the church, but I, don't, I think if Jesus was taken out of this equation, I don't know if I'd be a part of it, right? But the foundation of what we are about, the foundation of who we are as a church, is we're people who are supposed to display and foster this connection that we have with Jesus in this world. And so, therefore, the, the reputation of the church should first and foremost be we are people who follow and display who Jesus is. Jesus' beatitude is calling us as children of God to find the blessing in being peacemakers. And that begins here with us. That has been the legacy of the church. We have many examples of Christians who have displayed what peacemaking can be. We have Mother Teresa and Dorothy Day teaching us to care for the poor. We have St. Francis who sought to end the crusades and actually traveled there preaching the gospel, not only in that situation, but preaching the gospel to all creation. And we also have Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., where this weekend we're spending our, our focus on reflecting on his life and legacy as a peacemaker who spoke against racism, segregation, and militarism. And on and on it goes. The Christian tradition is full of peacemakers. Peacemaking is not only their legacy, but it also could be ours as well. So let's take a, state, uh, take a step back real quick. In our culture, how would one define peace? I believe the most common answer would be peace is the absence of conflict. So we experience a no peace when things are calm, right? There's no conflict. We're in a time of peace, right? Although there's nothing wrong with that definition, it's not the, necessarily the biblical idea or the, or the Hebrew idea of uh, peace. Peace in the Hebrew understanding is this word shalom. It's one of the most important concepts in all the Bible. And shalom is not only the absence of conflict, it actually describes something different. Shalom is the experience when life is as it should be. 
when everything is in its right order. And the byproduct of that is there's wholeness and flourishing takes place. It's more than the absence of conflict. It's actually experiencing life as God created it to be. All of a sudden, then we experience peace. And the important thing for uh, seeing these two different definitions is if we follow one versus the other, it'll lead us in two different directions. If our idea of peace and what we should pursue as peace is the absence of conflict, what will that produce in us? It'll produce a desire to step away from when things are challenging and difficult. It'll be an opportunity for us when we want to be people who make pieces, we actually vacate conflict and challenges. But if you look at what Jesus did, he never did that. He was almost attracted to conflict. Not that he loved the drama, right? It's not that. But what Jesus was drawn to was oftentimes these moments of conflict was the fruit that something was not in its right order. People were being used and not valued. That there is, there is this racism taking, taking place between Jew and Gentile and Samaritan. That things were out of order. And so Jesus stepped into it to make peace. When religion was being mis- misused and abused, Jesus drew close to speak truth to power. When the poor were being oppressed and devalued, Jesus drew close to reorder and restore people to wholeness. When voices of judgment and condemnation were present, Jesus drew close to muzzle those voices with the power of grace. So it's actually being drawn into difficult, challenging, conflicted moments. This is where Jesus was a peacemaker. And that's our example of how to follow him as well. And Jesus came to give shalom, deep peace. Jesus said uh, to his disciples in John 14, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So for those of us, including myself, walking into 2024 with a low dose of anxiety of what I think is coming ahead, I wonder if Jesus would want to speak to us. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Receive Christ's peace and move into this world with humble courage that God might use you and me to seek peace. That is what we're going to be doing these next 12 weeks. We're going to be exploring that together. And to start off this journey, it begins when we as people have discovered and found peace with God. That's the very first step in this journey of being peacemakers, is for us to discover peace with God. Before we go explore how to make peace in this world, we need to ensure that we have been and are being shaped by the peace of God in our hearts, in our life. It is there that we can be people who can take what we've experienced and go into this world, allowing God's peace to be established and create the right order in this world. As St. Augustine famously said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Whether you know Jesus or not, you were created to know Jesus. And if Augustine is correct, then our hearts will be at peace if only we have been connected to and abiding to the very source of life with God through Christ. And so as we begin this conversation, I've been wondering what undercuts our peace with God? What are the forces in our lives that undercut a sense of peace with God? 
I think there are a handful, but three that came to mind was one is a lack of experiential knowledge of God. If you haven't known God, if you haven't walked with God, uh, it's hard to experience that peace. So therefore, we go into this world sent by Jesus to share good news. The second thing that undercuts our peace with God is that we turn from God's peace either in rebellion or distraction or forgetfulness. We just, we forget to connect to the peace that we have once experienced with God. And so we, 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 we lose that sense of peace. But I think for those who would show up to church when it's below 30 degrees, a.k.e. you, or for those who listen on our podcasts, there's another force that often undercuts our peace with God. In my role as a pastor, I think nothing undercuts our peace with God more than a d- distorted view of God. We all have narratives, we all have frameworks that we were given to understand God. And sometimes there's challenges that we experience with those. Um, sometimes we experience a framework that has a distortion to it, that in this framework undercuts a peace that we could have with God. So instead of leading to peace, these frameworks produce fear, immense pressure. Some of these frameworks, uh, they are fueled by shame. That's our connection to God. And sometimes they lead to despair. Um, I I often think about the quote from A.W. Tozer. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what comes to mind is that framework that we've been taught. Whatever that framework might be. And what Tozer is saying, that's the most important thing about us. It's like the most fundamental part of you, the most, the most powerful part of you is what comes to mind when you think of God. And there's some of us, that framework produces a lot of different things. Like I said, some of those frameworks produce shame, fear, pressure, despair. And there's power in those frameworks. And I think in this step for us, as we are trying to find peace with God, the experience of peace needs a reordering. If shalom is the reordering of our world, many of us need a reordering in our view of God. I have had countless conversations with people who are trying to restore a faith in God. They're trying to make sense of a, of a life with God again. And I think some of the hardest work is untangling life from those distorted frameworks. So here are a couple examples of frameworks I've heard from people in this room and people in Austin the frameworks that what comes to mind when I think of God. One is God loves the better version of me. God loves the more moral, the more disciplined, the more straight or the closeted version of me. God loves the me before that failure, before that divorce. God loves the version of me that prayed more, that believed more, that cared more. God's love, God loves me before that thing that, just, that destroyed everything in my life. And therefore, God's love is like this dangling carrot that's always in front of us. And it doesn't matter how hard I strive and how hard I run, it's always out of reach. And that's their framework. And just think about what's produced in that framework, right? Then there's another framework that people have, and that is a framework that God's not relational at all. Instead, God is like a belief system. God is a version of morality. It's a code that I'm supposed to live by, So therefore, this conversation around knowing God and hearing from God sounds like weird and scary sometimes. This idea of walking with Jesus and knowing Jesus in that way seems foreign. Just think about what's produced in that framework. And there's another framework, probably the most common and most destructive framework I've heard in counseling sessions with uh, folks in our community, is a framework of God 
that begins with God's wrath. So after the fall, God's default posture towards humanity and all broken things is that of anger and wrath and of judgment. And if that is God's default position towards us, then think of what's produced. Uh, So God has to have, because of God's holiness, hatred to all things which sin has claimed. And that includes me and you. In the deepest part of us, we are broken to our core. So therefore, God's default posture towards us is that is judgment and condemnation. But don't worry, because Jesus came so that God's hatred and wrath and the requirement of blood and violence had a place to go, which is the cross. Now, Jesus stands between us and an angry God, sedating God's hatred that was reserved for us. And Jesus says, in like a non-religious way, it's cool, God, they're with me, all right? So that's the framework, all right? Now, if that's our framework, how does that shape our view of God? If our default view of God is angry and violent, and our view of ourselves is fundamentally as a sinner who is wicked to the core and worthy of divine hatred and wrath for all of time, This sets up a framework where we are at odds with God, where Jesus is our divine release valve for God's anger. Now, just just so you all know, I do believe that that God has just anger and judgment over sin and oppression, but I think this framework sets a vision of God as fundamentally angry and violent, and that fosters a relationship that becomes really problematic between us and God. When most people envision God's face towards them, it's a face of what? Disappointment, perpetual disappointment, and anger. Do you see how that framework will then shape who we are? Do you see the power in that framework? There's another view of this, guys, and I think it's one that can lead to peace, that God's posture and default disposition to humanity is that of love and compassion. Jesus is not standing between us and an angry God full of hatred towards us. Jesus is not the release valve of God's wrath and violence. Jesus is the extension of the compassion of God whose love is greater than all of our failures. For God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son. For God so loved the world that he did this, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Upon that cross, Jesus put to death all of the power of shame and self-hatred that we are perpetuating oftentimes in our life. Jesus sought to end the empty cycles of religious striving and approval. God's love embodied in Jesus has gone through all of the suffering that we've experienced, including death and sorrow and despair, so that you and I would know that we are never alone. God is with us and is for us. Our Savior has been there and stands with you. Yes, we have the tendency and the predisposition to choose sin and brokenness and return to it again and again, but there's something deeper about you. The deepest part of you is not you're broken or you're sinful and worthy of wrath. The deepest part of you is that you are loved. You are loved. That's your default position in this world, is that you are beloved by God. The deepest part of you is chosen. It's claimed 
And Jesus, Jesus did this so that we could discover peace. Think of how different a picture and a framework that is. Even how that would shape God's disposition. Even how that would shape God's face towards you. I've been reading this book lately. It's called Church uh, of the Other Half. It's a, a book about brain development and spirituality. And uh, I was amazed to find something as I was reading through this, uh, this writing. One of the most important, if not the most important fuel for the brain to work is through joy. Our brains intuitively scan the world looking for where joy is present for us. And what research shows is that joy is, the crucial, is crucial for relational and emotional development. And it's like the key is there's nothing that communicates more powerfully to the brain than seeing the face of joy and delight. It's like our faces, our minds are scanning the world for faces that light up when they're in our presence. And what's wild is that the Bible in the original Hebrew is full of depictions of God's face towards humanity, which is so, so powerful. So think of this. I think the, uh, those who were translating scripture thought it was clunky and it read weird, so they just translated it from God's face to God's presence because it just, that makes more sense. But something is lost when we do this. So for instance, this is Psalm 1611. You might know this verse. In your presence is the fullness of joy. Ah, isn't that great? In your presence is the fullness of joy. But do you want to know what the original Hebrew reads? It says this. It says, there is abundance of joy with your face. That when God is with us, that there's an abundance of joy in God's face. Do you feel the difference? Do you see the difference? Instead of this generic idea of God's divine presence and joy, we have a picture of God who is joy-filled with delight and a gaze over humanity. That's powerful. Or consider the blessing that we find in Numbers 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and what? Give you peace. There's a connection between God's face, his delight, his gaze, and peace. Or we have in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, when, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in what? In the face of Christ. This is how God's glory has been displayed. It's in the face of Christ. And so therefore, what was that face of Christ? What was his disposition? Well, I look at the face of love that gazed upon the downcast, the lowly, the rejected, the condemned, the neglected, the too far gone, the sinful, the harlot, the cripple, the dejected, those who looked upon the face of love and compassion, that's where God's glory was. And what science says is what we find, what we see in our scripture, is that this is how God designed our brains, that God's joy is the foundation for a secure relationship that we have with God. And if that's true, when we think of God as distant and wrathful and bloodthirsty, what kind of bond will we have with God? It's one that, fe that fuels fear, insecurity. It has this ominous feeling of judgment. 
But if we see God's glory in the face of Jesus, who chooses to look upon us with gracious delight and joy, do you know what's released? Peace. If that's our view of who God is. There's no way to have a deeply established relationship with God until we see that the face of God in, through Christ is that of joy over you. Not because of what we have done, but because of who God is and how God chooses to see each of us. We find peace with God when we're able to discover the delight in our Savior's face. One of Jesus' disciples said it beautifully. This is 1 John chapter 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with judgment. The one who fears has not been made perfect or made complete in love. Love's work is to banish fear and shame and condemnation and disdain. Self-hatred and fear towards God is not a badge of your discipleship. It's a sign that you have not been perfected or complete completely made in love. So if I could be so bold, I'd like to say that A.W. Tozer is wrong, okay? Can I do that? Heretical statement coming? I'm not sure if you guys grew up with A.W. Tozer or if he's just a random name, but I think he was wrong. I think what comes to mind when you think about God is the second most important thing about you. The first and most important thing is what comes to God's mind when God thinks of you, that is the most important thing about you. And by the way, through Christ, that will never be shifted. And if God's face towards you is that of love and compassion and belonging and claiming and forgiveness and mercy and joy and delight, what if we actually lived into that? What if we actually found peace I think one of the most radical things that some of you might need to believe is not only that God loves you, but God actually likes you. Like God delights in you. So in a bout of nostalgia this week, my oldest daughter turned 12, and I was texting my friend Luke and some other guys, uh, are you all alone in this? I decided I was going to put together a slideshow. So I started scrolling through pictures, and guess what happened 20 minutes later? I am bawling on the couch, like... <laughs> I'm absolutely bawling on the couch by myself. And then I went to this bout of nostalgia. I went up to Dylan's room, just not like creepy, but I just wanted to go in a room, like just like, what is my daughter up to? Just having this, taking this moment of just kind of just reflecting on who she was and is. And, um, and then I went through a room and here we are, like just a bunch of knickknacks. We have a Harry Potter stuff. We have bunch of arrowheads that her grandfather gives her that we don't know what to do with, so they end up over here, right? And of course, there's that picture uh, right there uh, that she claimed and, and uh, is now in her room. And uh, when I was looking at that, though, I remember this figurine that someone gave me right when she was born. Uh, Dylan stole it from me around five years ago, and I forgot about it, but she has this. Is this a figurine that someone gave me, shout out Nancy Pickett, uh, who gave me this figurine right after Dylan was born. And I remember her saying, uh, I hope you know this is also how God sees you. And uh, what if that was the case? For me, I, this marks like the moment of just looking at a child who does nothing for me, but just being amazed of the beauty and the wonder of life. And what if 
we could actually believe that that's God's view of us too. That's God's face towards you, closely looking upon you with amazement, with wonder, with joy, that this is my child. Think of the peace that could be yours if you walked in through this world with that, with all the triumphs and accomplishments that God's joy is over you, with all your failures and your worst days, there's the look of love and joy that sees through your regrets. As we grow old and wrinkle and we get soft in the belly, there's a steadiness of God's joy and delight over you. And as we pass from this side of life to the next, imagine the very first thing that we will be welcomed by is the face of your Savior who looks upon you with making, it begins with this at home. As we begin this journey towards peacemaking, it begins with this, that we could find peace. And I think there's no greater source of peace than the face of Jesus who sees you fully and loves you with all abandonment, who not only loves you, but likes you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to the Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.